All right, the only announcements I'm aware of tonight is I think that we are going to, we'll send an email out on this, I think that we're going to be all ready for next Tuesday night to open that up and on Tuesday and Thursday night, but we'll probably wait till until July before we handle things on Sunday morning just for logistical reasons. That's the only thing that I can think of that's a, that's an announcement right now. Cast your burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain you. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? We come together this evening, we need to make sure that we are in right relationship with the Lord. Every time we study the Word, we are studying the Word and the revelation of a holy God. We are not holy except positionally. The instant we trust in Christ as Savior, we are made holy in Christ. But when we sin, we're no longer walking by the Spirit. We're no longer in right relationship with God. We're no longer walking in the light. We're walking in the darkness. And so our experiential righteousness, our experiential walk with the Lord is breached. There's no longer rapport with the Lord, so we have to confess sin. And then God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so thankful we can come together as a body of believers. We're one in the body of Christ. And Father, we pray that as we learn and as we grow and as we mature, that an experiential unity can be realized over the course of time because of spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. Father, we continue to pray for wisdom as we search the scriptures to understand what you have revealed to us about what is foundational to the success of a nation, to the success of individual lives the foundation for biblical wisdom and biblical truth, to be able to root out of our souls uh, human viewpoint and pagan ideas and opinions and values that so often uh, continue to disrupt our thinking as believers in Christ. And Father, we pray that you would enlighten us for as we're studying about uh, knowledge and how we know truth, we know that we only know light in our experience on the basis of the overpowering light of your word. And so we must come to the word of God, willing to submit to your authority, willing to submit to the authority of your word, and set aside human opinions, no matter how dear or cherished they might be. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. This evening, we're continuing our study on the topic of how should we then vote. A lot of people come to this whole issue with voting based on particular issues. And that's what's different about this study is is I'm trying to demonstrate that it's not about individual issues. It's much more foundational than that. And so today we're going to look at the authority of the Bible as it is understood in the Judeo-Christian worldview and then how how it was understood 
in the generation of the founding fathers. A key verse that we're using as a touchstone, Psalm 11.3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, this is very important because there are foundational truths in the Scripture, truths that are foundational for salvation, truths that are foundational for developing biblical wisdom in our souls that we can apply in every area of life. And that involves areas that in, that are based on ethical or moral decisions, and that in turn affects decisions that we make when we go to vote. And it's not as simple as a lot of people present it when we look at the Scripture. And so we have to truly understand what the Scripture is teaching. And today in a lot of churches, and today in a lot of areas of Christianity and in some denominations, uh, they have been incredibly impacted by a lot of erroneous teaching about the Bible. Uh, this is not new. A lot of this has been going on for well over 140 years. But as Bible-believing Christians, we have to submit to the Word of God. We have to make sure that we are not infected in our thinking by false concepts about uh, the perfection of mankind, false concepts about the perfection of a nation, uh, utopian concepts that infiltrate and cause misinterpretations of passages in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, cause misinterpretation of a number of parables in Scripture, all because we're imposing a modern view on the Bible. And so we have to build our understanding step by step element by element. It's not something that is done quickly, but for the person who truly wants to submit to the Word of God and to truly understand what Scripture says, it is worth the effort and worth the time to think our way through these things. So we started with understanding a concept known as a worldview. This is the first part of this series, is understanding that we have to approach everything as believers from a framework of a biblical worldview. And as I pointed out in the first lesson, the sad reality today is among Christians as a whole, that would include liberal, that would include neo-Orthodox, that would include Roman Catholic, and etc. But among Christians as a whole, recent surveys have indicated that fewer than 9% believe, hold to a biblical worldview. Now, when we expand that to evangelicals and just look within the community of evangelicals that at the very simplest definitions are those that affirm the inerrancy and the authority of Scripture, we find that fewer than 20% today. And that number is half of what it was some 12 or 13 years ago. We're seeing the deterioration of our Christian community in terms of their ability to think Biblically, their ability to critically evaluate current events on the basis of a biblical framework because they just don't have it anymore. Uh, it is a failure of the pulpit. It is a failure of the Sunday school classroom. It is a failure of parenting. Uh, it is a broad failure of all, uh, all organizations within Christianity to teach biblical truth and to keep up with it and to challenge people to understand how biblical truth changes 
the way we think. This is uh, foundational for the spiritual life. Romans 12.2 says we're not to be conformed to the world, and yet in generation after generation, century after century in Christianity, this has been the struggle, is that the, the visible church is often terribly impacted by the world, the culture around them. And there is not one single culture in this world that is biblical, that can stand up to the scrutiny from the Scripture. Whatever culture it is, whether it's Western civilization, whether it's Asian, whether it's African, whether it is uh, Slavic, whatever that culture is, whether it is Arabic, whatever that culture is, and as dearly as we love the culture in which we are are reared, uh, no culture is uh, inherently biblical. And the more a culture gets away from the Bible, the more of a conflict there's going to be. And when Paul says that we are not to be conformed to the world, the one of the core ideas in that in that word is the culture around us. And we live in a world where, like it, for example, in the United States, we have many, many subcultures. And we're becoming more and more fragmented. The reason we're going to we're becoming more and more fragmented is because more and more of that those cultures refuse to to be transformed by the word of god and so they hold to some ideas that might conform somewhat to the bible and to other ideas that don't and so we have to really uh, just completely deconstruct our our own thinking and have a level of objectivity about it so that we can come to understand how we can be more Christ-like. It begins with changing the way we think. That's the essence of the word repent, which is often directed to believers, and it simply means to change the way you think so you quit thinking like a sinful pagan Christian, uh, and they're pagan Christians because they don't believe in a biblical worldview. So you don't think like a pagan, but you think like a biblicist like someone who truly understands and has been transformed by the Word of God. So as I've pointed out previously, a worldview, we use this illustration of an iceberg, a worldview is made up of various elements. And the, the most of the worldview is made up of elements that are not evident, not apparent at first sight. Yet these are things that we all have thought through and we've all made certain decisions about uh, mostly for a lot of people just at a superficial level, but others have thought taken more time to think through these particular issues. And so we have to understand how these things relate together and how they, uh, how one determines another. So the ultimate, the foundational area is our view of ultimate reality, which for a Christian is a God. Is God the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Bible, the God who is the live, called the living God and who raised uh, Jesus Christ from the dead. That is for a Christian worldview. But we're talking a little more broadly in terms of a Judeo-Christian worldview because we're looking at how the founding fathers of the United States thought and not all of them were Christians, and not all of them had a biblical view of the person or the work of Jesus Christ. But they still thought within what I'm calling a Judeo-Christian worldview, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. So we start with ultimate reality. Once we understand what ultimate reality is, then if we're consistent, 
we will develop certain views of truth, certain views of knowledge. And so these are the questions that are asked under the next category, which is knowledge. How do we know truth? How do we know right from wrong? How do we know anything? How do we know that we as as individuals have any value in life? Uh, If you take the starkest contrast, which is between a naturalistic worldview, the worldview of Darwin, the worldview of evolution, then we're just an accidental, uh, accidental. There's been an accidental discharge of electricity on a mass of protoplasm and goo, and here we are. And so there's no significance, there's no value to human beings whatsoever. And that is that is essential to most forms of paganism. And down through the centuries, you you only have a view of the value of individuals as individuals, no matter what the circumstances may be. You only have this view of the value of every single individual with the development of and the impact of uh, Judeo-Christian worldview, and, the, and especially after the formation of Christianity. But a lot of these ideas were very much present in historic biblical, biblical Judaism. And so epistemology is important because at some point, point you're going to make a decision or you're going to make a statement about truth or error. How do you know? How do you know it's right? How do you know what's wrong? How do you know what justice is? How do you know what something is in, unjust? How do you know? That is the area of ethics. What's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad. So you can't talk, uh, really have an intelligent or informed conversation about what is good or bad unless you've thought through the previous element, which is knowledge. And you can't really talk about knowledge unless you have some sort of basis for it in terms of ultimate reality. So every worldview goes through these categories, and I recommended a book, if you want to dig into this, by James Sire called The Universe Next Door. I believe it's in its fourth edition now. I think the fourth edition is uh, is about to become available in Logos Bible Software. I have read almost parts of every edition. I started reading the first edition when I was in my uh, first year in seminary. So this, that, that's been going on for, for quite a while. Political and national decisions, leadership decisions, individual life decisions are all built on the our view of ultimate reality, our view of knowledge, and our view of ethics. But like I say, most people have never really thought that through. And so that's the purpose of starting with this is we have to think it through because all application in life comes uh, as a result of this worldview. I've started with the idea of a Judeo-Christian worldview. A couple of weeks ago I had six points for this. We're just focusing on the first three right now. Number one, God is the creator of all things and created human beings in his image and likeness. So under that first point we have an understanding of ultimate reality, which is the God of the Bible, and secondly, that human beings have value because they're created in his image and likeness, and that gives every single human being uh, value and purpose. We're not just the uh, result of some sort of primordial accident that gave birth to uh, organic material. We are the intentional and purposeful creation of a of a God who is omniscient and omnipresent, 
and that that God has a purpose and a design for every single human being. And so the Bible claims that we are the direct intentional creation of God, and therefore every human being has uh, dignity. Every human life, it doesn't matter uh, what country you're from, it doesn't matter what your ethnicity is, it doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, educated or uneducated, whether you're ignorant, whether you have a high IQ, low IQ, uh, whether you work in a profession or work with your hands, none of those things affect value. But when you contrast that to the pagan view that is out there, that is the view of, of evolution, then what you're left with is just an accident. There's no difference ultimately between a human being and a single-cell amoeba. None whatsoever. And just as you can wake up in the morning and maybe see a cockroach scurrying across the floor of your kitchen and you stomp on it and squash it, there's no difference between that and squashing the life out of a human being. In other words, on a purely naturalistic worldview, the only thing that determines uh, ethics and values, as we'll see, is power. Power and money. And you see that today in so many things on the news. Just think about what's transpired in the last couple of weeks. You see different groups vying for power because then when they have power, they can determine what's right or wrong rather than submitting to the word of God and letting the word of God uh, determine what is right or wrong. And so that takes us to the second point, that the Bible is God's revelation to man, and it's completely accurate in all that it reveals to man, teaching them how to live wisely in God's creation, which has been marred by sin. And third, that God created human, the human race in his image, both male and female. So when we look at these basic elements of a worldview, ultimate reality, it's either personal or impersonal. There's no other option. And if it's not personal, then there's no basis for understanding the value or significance of personality. Second, knowledge. Either there's absolute truth or there's not absolute truth. Let me give you a simple illustration. Are there absolutes? The absolutes that are true in every culture, every time, every place. Well, if you answer and say there's no absolutes, then that's a logical fallacy because the statement itself is an absolute. But let's just think about something else. What is the definition of a circle? Is that definition the same from the, from the beginning of time? Is a circle ever, think, ever anything other than a perfectly round sphere where all points on the line are equidistant from the center? Uh, the definition of a circle never changes. The definition of a square never changes. The definition of a triangle never changes. These are universals and these, they're absolutes, and it doesn't matter whether you are living in Asia, whether you're living in Africa, whether you're living in South America, North America, Western civilization, wherever you live, those are absolutes. So we've established the point that there are some absolutes, and then we just move from there and we will discover that there are many absolutes. Ethics are the standards or the absolute value system by which we live. And then this leads to the fourth area, which is beauty, and we're not really covering that in relation to the topic. The human race, as we saw last time, was created by God. Psalm 139, 14, God says, I, uh, um, David says, I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. This is a point. Each of us is distinct and unique creations of God, images of God, and therefore 
We all have value and significance and must be treated with respect. When there is a lack of respect, the ultimate form of a lack of respect is murder, as I pointed out last time. And God says in the Noahic Covenant that if a human being murders another human being, he's worthy of the death penalty because he has uh, killed someone who is in the image and likeness of God, murdered someone who is in the image and likeness of God. That's the reason. It's not for deterrence. It's not for punishment in terms of retribution. It is simply because evil has so permeated their soul that they no longer value a fellow image bearer. And to destroy an image, an image bearer is an attack against God. And so that person has so destroyed their soul that they no longer have a right to live. We looked at God. We looked at the fact that God's personally self-conscious. He exercises will and determination, and he has intellectual ability. All of that is mirrored in every single human being. That's why we are in the image and likeness of God. So what we learn from Genesis 1, 26 and 27 is that this aspect of Imageness is critical and foundational to understand who we are as human beings. Now, of course, this has been marred. It's been corrupted by sin. We'll get to that next time when we get into the issue uh, related to ethics. So last time we ended, how do we know what we know? That's the second step in our, in our iceberg. How do we know what we know? And there's basically four ways that have been articulated down through history as to how we come to know uh, truth. How do we come to know something is true? And so here's our chart. You, you all who are here have all seen this many times. And what we have are two categories of, of, of uh, knowledge, of, of getting to know things. You have the uh, divine viewpoint at the bottom, that is learning from God, and then above that you have three different um, systems, and I've labeled them autonomous systems of perception because they function independently of divine revelation. That's real important to understand. These systems, when they're understood as they exist, uh, without apart from revelation, are asserting that they can arrive at ultimate truth without God and without any input from divine revelation. So we begin, uh, we'll look at the system, what it is called, then we'll look at the starting point of each system, and then we'll look at the uh, methodology. So the first system is rationalism. Rationalism, as the word is commonly used, has a different sense, the idea of rationalizing something or coming up with some sort of uh, twisted or bogus way to justify something is not what this is talking about. Rationalism is a term to describe a, a philosophical way of expressing how people come to know things, how we, how we learn things. And so this first system is called rationalism because its starting point is human reason, independent of anything else, independent of any external authority giving it information, independent of, of any kind of divine revelation, independent of any kind of, of uh, sense data. That is, independent of what we see, hear, taste, uh, touch, 
uh, see, all of those things are excluded. It just starts with the human mind alone. And the idea is that we can develop from just our thinking an entire basis for explaining and understanding uh, reality. So the starting point for a rationalist is different from someone who is a biblicist. And I'll come back and talk about that in a minute. Or someone who is a, an empiricist. They are excluding authority, so they're not going to start with the Bible. They're just going to start with whatever they can develop uh, within their own mind. And so the perfect example of this was a French philosopher and mathematician in the 17th century by the name of René Descartes. And so his system is referred to as Cartesianism from the last part of his, of his name. And he began to think through, how do I know that I'm here? How do I know I exist? How do I know you exist? How do I know that these chairs exist? How do I know that this room exists? How do I know that the world exists? How do I know that there are even trees or flowers or birds or, or that what I smell is not, is not some sort of illusion? What if there's some evil spirit that is causing me to have these uh, sort of visions of reality, but, but it really doesn't exist? It's all a deception. How do I know that anything exists? And so he kept... Uh, raising this issue of doubt as he thought about things. Well, how can I know that? Well, that could be a deception. That could be wrong. This could be wrong. Ultimately, he came to a point where he said, well, I'm thinking. I have a consciousness. I'm thinking. So, so I must exist because I have this sense of, of self-consciousness and, and thought. So I must exist. And so his uh, basically his rubric was, I think, therefore, I am. Because I'm thinking, I know I exist. And so that's his starting point. I know I exist. So his starting point is man. His starting point is his own thinking. And his starting point beyond that is a belief that he can properly interpret everything without any outside information. So it's ultimately, as I'm going to show you, based on faith. So rationalists believe that just through thinking and the rigorous use of logic, you can reach accurate conclusions. So for them, we're all born with some innate ideas that we, will dis- that we are discovered, and then we build on those until we come to an understanding of the existence of an outside world, the existence of the universe, and the existence of God. But ultimately, it's based on a faith in human ability to analyze, understand, and interpret it is then you have your starting point because I think I exist. We're going to rigorously build a system based on logic and reason, the independent and autonomous use of logic and reason until I can get to God. And so he developed a form of an argument for the existence of God known as the ontological existence of God. Now, I'm not going to get off into that, but but he was criticized for that, that he really couldn't get outside of his own head. You can come up with a lot of ideas and a lot of things, but you ultimately can't prove that anything exists out of your head. You can't make that leap. And so eventually the concepts of rationalism uh, fell apart. They did in the modern world, in the early Enlightenment, just as they did in the ancient world uh, under Plato. 
eventually those systems were rejected that they just couldn't really get you to eternal absolute truths. So it, just as in the ancient world, it's replaced by empiricism. Empiricism is the idea that we're born with a blank slate, total, total blank slate, and as a result of sense perceptions, you know, the, the five senses, what we see, what we taste, what we touch, what we hear, you know, all of these are, these, are our five senses, and it, we receive input through those senses, what we see, what we taste, what we touch, what we smell, what we hear. And as a result of that, the brain starts working and building these categories in, of knowledge, and we grow from there. But it's still ultimately based on faith. It's ultimately based on a faith in human ability to properly and correctly understand and interpret that which is perceived through the senses without any external information, that you can arrive at eternal, absolute truth without any external information. Like rationalism, it's built on the independent use uh, of logic and reason. Now, there's a third area here, which is called mysticism. Mysticism is often thought to be what prophets in the Bible experience, and it's not, and I'll get into some of that a little bit later on. But mysticism is also one of those concepts that's very difficult to define. In fact, I went back to a book I, I picked up about 30 years ago called Faith Misguided, Exposing the Dangers of Myths, Mysticism, published by Moody Press, an outstanding book on understanding, understanding mysticism. And in his, in his introduction, uh, Arthur Johnson, who's the author, makes the point that no one has really adequately defined mysticism. And the reason for that is mysticism is unlike rationalism or empiricism in that rationalism and empiricism are both based on logic and reason, but mysticism is the rejection of logic and reason as a means to truth. So mysticism is always inherently irrational. And because ultimately the mystical experience is a private, totally internal experience, it can't be validated. This is why I always say we have to judge the Bible. I mean, we have to judge experience by the Bible. We don't judge the Bible by our experience. We all have all kinds of experiences. If you are a wealthy uh, elite and you live in uh, Manhattan and you went to the best schools, you have one type of experience. If you live and grow up on a farm in Arkansas, you have another form of experience. If you grow up in, uh, as I've had a couple of friends who are missionary kids, if you grow up in the rainforest in the Amazon down in, uh, down in Brazil, you have a different experience. Some people have, uh, have had heart attacks or they've almost died and they've had experiences of going to a bright light. Other people have had opposite experiences are going to something dark. Uh, but how do you validate those experiences? Everybody has experiences. 
you never can invalidate an experience, that's, and you can't validate it either. That's just the way it is. What you have, though, is, is reason and revelation in order to develop truth. And so truth is capable of being evaluated. So we always have to be careful when we deal with, with these kinds of mystical experiences, and that's why it's very difficult to, to define them. And as Johnson points out, uh, it, it can't be uh, identified. I mean, it can't be defined. So in mysticism, it makes the uh, ultimate truth claim that due to internal intuitive insights that are not capable of verification because they're totally inside. Nobody else sees it. Nobody else witnesses it. Uh, you just know it's true that that is, not, um, that is not something that therefore can be verified or falsified. And the truth of the, myst- of the mystical insight uh, has to be uh, accepted simply because a person says that they had it. Now, I'm not going to get into a lengthy discussion on all of this, but I do want to bring out a, a couple of interesting points as we go along and as we, as we look at, at mysticism. But we'll, we'll stop here for a minute before we go to the, to the fourth category. But in mysticism, it's based on, again, it's independent of any kind of revelation or authority of God. It is not logical. It is irrational. And it's non-verifiable. The fourth category is called, in some, some books that you read about this, it's called authority. In others, it's called revelation. Now, one of the things we need to point out is that in the first three, I've stated that faith is the assumed basis, the presupposed basis of everything, that faith in human ability can get you to truth. And that makes man the measure of truth. I read a, a book years ago. In fact, I thought it was another book by this guy. And today I just happened to be looking on my shelf, and I found this one. I went, oh, that's where it was. book I had to read back in a philosophy class or for uh, my doctoral program, and I don't remember which it was. It's called The Foundations of Knowing. I don't recommend that anybody read it because it's extremely technical and difficult to work through, but the bottom line of what he said is all knowledge is ultimately based on faith. And that agrees with with the Bible, that everything is ultimately based on belief, on faith. So revelation has a different object for faith. In rationalism, empiricism, and mysticism, faith is in human ability to understand truth and the assumption that on the basis of what we know there won't be any additional information that comes in that would change our ideas and our foundational beliefs but the bible teaches that that there's something in addition there's something that god reveals to man that without those elements, we can't really understand or truly understand who we are, who God is, and the nature of reality. So the starting point for revelation is faith in the objective revelation of God. That is the objective revelation of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, 39 books, and the New Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament. Now, aside from what some people will say, 
that it's not a rejection of logic or reason. The starting point is God gives you a piece of information, you accept it as true, and then you develop the implications of that through the use of logic and reason. Now, one thing I want to address before we get any further, that are, and that is this, these various claims that you'll see, well, the Bible is basically mystical. This whole idea of divine revelation is basically mystical. And if we're going to understand the Bible, we have to take the Bible on its own terms. We have to understand the Bible's claims for itself, and we have to evaluate those on the basis of what else the Bible says to see if it all holds together and it's internally consistent. So... One of the things that, that we recognize is that revelation in the Bible is never treated as some sort of private, intuitive insight. It's never this, this sense that came out of some groups of Christians in the 16th and 17th century of some sort of inner light, uh, that, that God speaks privately to us. And that then we can claim God spoke to me and God told me. That's a strong authoritative statement. And so we have a rejection of that in the Mosaic Law. For example, two passages that are critical, Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, and Deuteronomy chapter 18. In Deuteronomy 13, the, the, God says, If there arises among you a prophet or dreamer of dreams... And he gives you a sign or a wonder. Notice the assumption there. Number one, the possibility that somebody's going to come along and they're going to make a prophecy. They're going to say, oh, I had a dream, I had a vision, and he's going to validate it through some sort of sign or wonder. Now notice, God doesn't say it's a fake sign, it's a fake wonder, it's a fake miracle. God is assuming for the sake of argument that he's going to come along and say, God told me this, and... And, and so it's going to be, it's confirmed by the fact that I've healed you or I have raised the dead or something like that. Raising the dead really didn't happen. But anyway, that's the assumption. And then notice what God says next in verse 2. And the sign or the wonder comes to pass. See, he's accepting it as, okay, so you've gone and you've gone to a healing service and the person up front said, called you out and said, you've got cancer and I'm healing you right now, and just the day before, you had tests, and the doctor told you you had cancer. Why you're, that's why you're at the healing service. And then you go back two days later, and the doctor says, I don't know what happened. It's gone. And now you say, oh, I've been healed. I've had people tell me this before. This passage isn't necessarily invalidating the experience. Remember what I said about experience earlier? You can't validate or invalidate some people's experience, so don't get caught up in in discussing what your experience was versus what my experience was. If you do that, you put yourself in the same trap of Eve in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. So the issue isn't the sign or the wonder. The issue isn't the miracle. The issue is what does the person teach? Is what that prophet teaches the same as what the Word of God says? That's the standard, that's the authority. Or is it different? Is it the same as the Word of God or different? And so that's what we read in verse 2. He says, And if the sign or wonder comes to pass, of which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods. See, what's his message? 
God said, you will have no other gods before me. This guy comes along and says, oh, let's go to this 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 uh, temple over here, and there are multiple gods there, and that's okay because God said it was okay. He told me it was okay, and that's why I performed the miracle. So it's okay. Let's go do that. And you say, no, you're a false prophet because your message is wrong, and I'm not going to get trapped by the fact that you had some kind of a miracle or some kind of a sign or wonder. That's not valid. So this is, the, this is the point here. And what God says is you shall not listen to the words of that prophet, not because they had a false miracle, but because they were teaching the wrong thing, something that did not line up with what the Bible says, not line up with some abstract thing that you, principle that you think the Bible says. But when it, it is telling you to do A and the Bible says don't do A, Don't listen to the words of that prophet or the dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you. He allows you to come along to see if you're really going to put your ultimate authority with everything you've got on the Word of God. See, this is the biblical view of authority. That fourth system revelation is it's not about what you think in terms of your independent reason. It's not about what you think on the basis of your independent experience or empiricism. It's not on the basis of your independent uh, internal private experience of mysticism. It's on what does the Word of God say. And if what you're saying doesn't conform to what the Word of God says, then in this case, under the Mosaic Law, the penalty was immediate death. Take them out, death penalty. Why? Because this person has put themselves in the place of God. This is ultimate blasphemy. He is leading the people of God astray. And so that's why it's taken so seriously that it's a capital crime and the death penalty. <clears throat> God says to them in verse 4, You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God. The ultimate issue for the believer in Christ is are you going to evaluate experience by the Word of God or are you going to evaluate the Word of God by your experience? And there are way too many Christians who are evaluating the Word by their experience and then ultimately when you look at that iceberg illustration, for them ultimate reality, they say, I believe in the God of the Bible but their view of ultimate reality doesn't connect to their view of knowledge or their view of ethics or their view of politics. There's a huge disconnect that takes place. And that's what happens when you have a theoretical commitment to Christianity, but you haven't let it uh, change your thinking or change your mind. The second test in, in Deuteronomy is in Deuteronomy chapter 18. And here we have another person who comes forward and claims to be a prophet, claims to be speaking for God, claims to say this is what God says. And here God says, But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, thus saith the Lord, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. God is rather harsh about these things. Why? Because if you follow the false teacher, it'll destroy your life, it'll destroy your marriage, it'll destroy your family, it'll destroy your nation. 
because it will lead you into the path of unrighteousness and into a, a, a totally fallacious view of reality. And so God says in verse 21, And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? Now that's a really good question. I bet there's not a person listening to me that hasn't at some point asked this question, how do I know it's really God? When I look at the Bible, how do I know it's really God's word? How do I know I can really trust it? How do I know when somebody says this is what the word of God says that I can really trust it? Well, that's an extremely long discussion, and that's not part of what I'm looking at tonight, but I want you to see what, what the context is in the Mosaic Law. God says, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord. Now, a pastor does not speak in the name of the Lord. First of all, if you have a pastor who speaks in the name of the Lord, then you better go find a church where the pastor is teaching the Bible. Okay? I do not speak in the name of the Lord like an Old Testament prophet did because I'm not a prophet. I don't have that level of authority. The authority is in the Word of God, not in me as a gifted prophet or something like that. God no longer gives the gift of prophet. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, see, what would validate a message of prophet? A prophet would say, something is thus and so is what God says. And to validate that, this is what's going to happen tomorrow. So that the, we think of prophecy as a statement of predicting the future when the primary significance of a prophecy was really a condemnation, a judgment against Israel for their violation of the law. And so it, it's connected to, a, to the telling of a future event in order to validate and give the credentials of the, of the Old Testament prophet. And so God says, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. So in other words, if you were going to claim to be a prophet in Israel, you had to be 100% right. 99.9 got you stoned. 99.8 got you stoned. You are only validated as a prophet if 100% of what you said that was verifiable in the near future uh, came true. 100%. God has a very strict code. He has a high standard. He doesn't lower the standard. He said, if the thing does not come to pass, that's not what the Lord spoke. And the prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. When the Lord your God has cut off the nations whose land the Lord your God is giving you and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and, and their houses. Um, I shouldn't have, didn't need to get 19.1 in there. That was a mistake. So it's a death penalty, once again. Another example of a mystical experience in the Bible is found in Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, we have a really interesting experience because this is when Saul of Tarsus, who is... Uh, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, as he said, he is. Uh, he is. Uh, he has a, a complete commitment to the Mosaic Law as Pharisees interpreted it, and the number one enemy for him is Christians. And so he is seeking out all of the Christians he can find in order to, as he said, murder them, to have them killed, to have them executed, to have them arrested, to remove them and obliterate them from the land. He is filled with all manner of prejudice and hostility 
uh, towards Christians. And then he is on a trip to Damascus. Damascus is probably about 70 or 80 miles from Jerusalem. It's north in Syria. If you've been with me to Israel, we've been up on the northern uh, northern border by Mount Hermon, and it's about 40 miles from there uh, to Damascus. So he is on the road, leaving Israel, headed up towards uh, Damascus in order to arrest Christians, to bring them back, haul them back to Jerusalem in order to have them executed. And on the way, the already resurrected and ascended Lord Jesus Christ appears to him and says to him, uh, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And it's it's obvious that this is the risen Jesus. The, the voice of God is self-authenticating. When you hear the voice of God, it's not like in, you know, the George Burns movie where you go, well, whose voice is that? When God speaks, everybody knows it and understands it. And so when Christ appeared to Paul, he, to Saul Tarsus on the road to Damascus, he immediately fell down. And there was this bright light, and Jesus is appearing to him in this bright light, and he clearly sees Jesus, and he sees the light, and he hears exactly what Jesus says. And so he speaks, responds to him in verse 6, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. First of all, this is different from mystical accounts because there's there's precise verbal revelation. Now, there may be some verb, some mystical accounts where there's something of that nature, but but this is very precise direction. He says, "Go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do." So when he gets there, there's going to be something happens that is predicted by Jesus, and that confirms the reality of this vision. The point is that uh, that when you have these mystical experiences, there's no external verification or validation. But that's also what's different here. There is external manifestation. Now, we're told that the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. They saw the light. They heard the sound of the voice, but it was muffled for them because Jesus' message was only for Saul. It wasn't for them. This is not a private, internal, psychological experience that Paul is having on the road to Damascus. As my Western Civ professor, a liberal Methodist Christian, told told the class, Paul was just accumulating more and more guilt of overkilling all these Christians, so he's just overwhelmed by by his guilt, and he has a psychotic break, and he thinks he sees Jesus. It's all an internal psychological thing, and that's typical of liberalism because they reject the authority of the Bible. So, but but it's confirmed because the bright light blinded Saul, and so he's told by God to go into. Uh, Damascus and a man named Ananias would meet him and would heal his sight. So when he goes into Damascus, guess what? He met a guy named Ananias. Ananias took him to his house. Now Ananias is fearful because Saul was coming to kill Christians. He's a Christian. So he's putting his life in, he's trusting God in this situation. And after three days, he heals Saul and Saul's sight returns. So that confirms through an objective evaluation, what happened 
somewhat privately, but not totally privately, to Paul on the road to Damascus. And so there's always that kind of objective validation. Whenever you have God speak to somebody in private in the Bible, there's always some way to externally verify it. And it's never this kind of private mystical experience that only that person knows. Just go back to Deuteronomy 13. Somebody says, God spoke to me. Well, there's verification in terms of what he said. There's always external verification. Now, another example that people use is the example of Moses being spoken to uh, when he's over in Midian and God appears to him in a burning bush, a bush that appears to be on fire, but it's never consumed. And out of this bush comes, comes the voice of God. But this incident isn't a mystical experience. Number one, it's not private. It's only, pri- only in the sense that nobody else is there, but it's not internal. There's an external bush, there's an external fire, there's an external voice. And this voice is going to commission Moses to a task and tell him specifically what he is supposed to do. And, and God is going to give him a staff, and Moses is saying, well, how do I, how do I prove that I'm coming from you? And God says, pick up that, that staff, that, that stick, and now throw it down, and it turns into a, a, a serpent, and then he tells Moses to pick it up. And so you have this external verification, and that's what's going to happen when Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, God said, let my people go. And, and Pharaoh rightly says, well, who are you, and why should I believe you? It, it's, it's like in Deuteronomy 13. Why should I believe you when you say that God spoke to you? And so you have these various things. Moses throws down his his staff. Aaron throws down his staff. They turn into serpents. And the first two or three uh, signs that he presents are duplicated in a counterfeit way by the priests of, of, of Egypt. But eventually it gets to the point where they can't copy what Moses is doing because it comes from uh, from God. So if Moses is there on in Midian on the mountain and he hears the voice of God, sees the bush, even though he didn't have the technology to do it, if we could go back in time and give him an iPhone, he would take a video and post it on his Facebook page. And you could see God and you could hear the voice of God because it had an external objective reality. And we can demonstrate that because just a few chapters later, after the after the Israelites have left Egypt and God leads them down uh, through Moses, leads them down to Mount Sinai, that when they are there, God speaks to Moses and says, this is what we're going to do. And he gives them all these directions. The people need to be cleansed. They need to go through this ritual, all of these different things, and then bring them up to the foot of the mountain, but don't go up on the mountain. Keep them back because the mountain is holy ground or distinct, unique uh, ground where God is. And then God speaks to them. And God is going to speak to them uh, in Exodus chapter 19.10 is when he's giving instructions to Moses. And then from Exodus chapter 19, verse 17, through the end, not the end, but to, through chapter 20, excuse me, chapter 20, verse 21, uh, so that, that God speaks to the entire nation of Israel. Every single Israelite heard God speak and they witnessed the pyrotechnics on the mountain. They heard the thundering. They heard the lightning. They, saw the, um, they heard the sound of the trumpet. They saw the smoking mountain, all of these things, and they were afraid and they trembled. 
But So this is not some inner light experience that's some group hallucination. There's three million Israelites there, and they all see and hear this, and they're so scared to death that they tell Moses, say, okay, we've got the Ten Commandments. Go get the rest of it. We don't want to hear the voice of God again because the voice of God is self-authenticating, and you don't have to hear it but one time, and you know that's God. So we have mysticism, and mysticism, reason, mysticism is totally different because it's irrational, and God created us to be rational beings. Reason and experience are different in the sense that God created us to be rational creatures, we have an, an intellect, and we are to use that intellect in order to investigate, in order to analyze and to categorize the things that God has put into his, his creation. And we begin to see this initially when God first created Adam and placed him in the Garden of Eden. Remember, on that sixth day, God creates Adam first thing in the morning, and then it's not until probably the afternoon before he uh, puts Adam to sleep and cr- creates the woman from Adam's rib so that the woman is derived from Adam. God creates Adam bara, and the woman is formed from the side of the man. But initially, God speaks only to Adam, and he gave Adam various responsibilities. He was to guard and to keep the garden, and he was to uh, the, he and his wife were told they were to uh, multiply and fill the earth. They were to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. All of these were the positive commands that God, God gave Adam. And to fulfill them, it was, would be necessary for Adam to use his cognitive skills because one of the things that God told him to do was to name the animals. So he's got to figure out how to organize the, atoms, the animals, how to come through, and he's got to use his observation skills to analyze the different animals, that this animal and that animal, well, they don't go together because this one's spotted and that one's not, and so those are different. And so he starts... Uh, the process of categorizing and classifying the animals, and he discovers that for every male there's a female counterpart. And eventually he realizes there's no female counterpart for him, and that's part of the reason for the exercise. But also it gets Adam to start the process of observing and learning about the uh, environment God put him in. So he's using his reason... And he, so he's using rationalism and he's using empiricism. And those work together often, but he's not using them independently of God. And then we have the third, or what is in my list, the fourth category of, of knowledge that comes from Revelation. And God puts him in the perfect Garden of Eden, and he tells him from all the trees you can eat. And so Adam's looking around, and he can see all these different trees, but until God told him that this is his source of food, he didn't know that. He, hadn't, he couldn't figure that out from reason, independent reason and experience. But now God tells him that. But then God says there's something else you need to know. There's one tree here. Now, some people always paint this tree or picture this tree as something different. I don't think it looked any different from any of the other trees. God just said, you don't eat from this tree. The instant you eat from this tree, you will certainly die. And of all the things 
Adam could learn from his experience and from his analysis and from his observation. That is one thing he could never learn. And the fact and reality of the fruit of the, fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and that that prohibition came with a penalty was not something he could learn ever through empiricism or rationalism. And my point is, is revelation doesn't tell us everything there is to know, but it gives us the critical information that we must know in order to properly organize all of the information and data that comes together as a result of our use of our reason and observation and experience. And so revelation is that way. So this is why the Bible is the ultimate reference point. It is our authority, and this is why the Bible judges and evaluates experience and not the other way around, because the Bible is God's God's blueprint for us. It is God's book of directions for us so that we can properly understand all the things that are going around on around us. And this is why Psalm 36, 9 says, in a prayer to God, David says, in your light, that is in the light of your word, then we see light. We can properly interpret the world around us because it is illuminated by the light of your world. It's the ultimate reference point. So how can we know? We started off going through the worldview. We start with our ultimate view of reality. Because we have a personal, infinite God who is a creator, we can create. Because he is, he can think. Because he has cognition, we can think. And so we are to think in light of what God reveals to us. And so that because we have the triune God of the universe as our ultimate reference point, we can then have a basis that we can know. And all through the Bible, we're told, you can know this, you can know that, you can know this, learn this, know that. And so the basis for knowledge in a Judeo-Christian worldview is the revelation of God. But when man comes along in sin, and we'll get to sin next time, man rejects that revelation, and so here in this diagram, we see what's described in Romans 1, 20 to 22. Romans 1, 20 begins, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, so that every human being has the cognitive skills to understand from what he sees that there is a creator, so that they are without excuse. It's clear enough to where... When they say, God, I just really couldn't see you. I just didn't get it. I just didn't understand God's going to say, no. You, You lied to yourself the whole time you were on the earth. You can't lie to me. I know better. I created you so that you knew. As soon as you saw the creation that I made... Instantly, some something inside of you resonated and you knew that there was a God who created it. That's what the verse is saying. And then in the verse 21, we read, although they knew God, see, every unbeliever knows there's no real atheist. Although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, but became futile in their thoughts, professing to be wise, they become fools. And so we have this famous statue of the thinker here, but in this rendition, he is 
not just leaning on his hand, contemplating infinity. He is holding up his arm and saying, no, I refuse to accept any input from the God who created everything. So he is rejecting God's nonverbal and his verbal uh, revelation. So this is, this is what, where man is after the fall. He has knowledge, but he rejects divine, divine revelation. Now, the next thing I want to talk about is the authority of the Bible. And I just want to run through this. We've all studied this, but this is just a reminder. It's very quick that what does the Judeo-Christian worldview believe about the Bible? And in the 17th, 18th, 18th centuries, they believed that the Bible was the Word of God. Now, today we have to use a lot of other terms to describe the same thing they believed. We use words like inspiration, infallibility, inerrancy, but they just believed the Bible was the Word of God. And it wasn't just Protestants that believed that. It wasn't just uh, Reformed Calvinists whether they were Baptist or Presbyterian or Congregational, it wasn't just just uh, uh, those from a Reformed tradition. Uh, Catholics, Catholics added the authority of the Pope to the authority of Scripture. But if you said the Scripture says that was good enough for everybody, now there were very few Jews initially in in the colonies, uh, according to uh, Mark David Hall. By 1776, there were about 2,000 Jews in the colonies. But at this point, most Jews were Orthodox. They believed in the authority of the Bible. It's just about this time that you have the beginning of what's called uh, Reform Judaism. And Reform Judaism uh, was the product of, a, uh, of, a, of an Enlightenment rabbi in Germany named Moses Mendelssohn, who's the father of the composer Felix Mendelssohn. What's interesting is that almost every one of his children and grandchildren uh, became uh, converted to Christianity. But Moses Mendelssohn rejects all the authority of the Torah and the Old Testament and uh, basically has a purely Enlightenment, uh, uh, relativistic view of everything in the Bible, just a human book, no different from extreme Protestant liberalism. But that wasn't the dominant view in the colonies or in Europe, for that matter. So let's just review it quickly. First of all, they believed what the Bible said about itself. The Bible claimed for itself to be the very words of God. Second Timothy three sixteen and 17, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's breathed out literally in the Greek. So God breathes it out through human authors, but they're writing down what comes via God. And so they viewed these things as Scripture, everything that was, that was written as, as, as Scripture. Um, let me see. Okay, I got this one slide out, out of order. Knowing that this is Second Peter 1, 20 and 21, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but by holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So the word of God comes, the Bible comes through human authors who don't mess it up because they are overridden by God the Holy Spirit. We've studied this many times. Now we know this because in various passages like 1 Timothy 5.18 
uh, Paul links together Old Testament and New Testament verses and calls them both Scripture. He combines a quote from Deuteronomy 25.4 with a quote from Luke 10.7, and he quotes both of them as Scripture with the introductory phrase, for the Scripture says. And what they meant by Scripture is this is the Word of God. Peter also recognized Paul's writings as Scripture and says that, well, they're difficult to understand, uh, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures to their own destruction. Secondly, in the Bible, you have the phrase, the Lord said, used 234 times. You have the phrase, God said, 44 times. You have the phrase, thus says the Lord, 420 times. Specific commands are given to write down the word of God. Matthew 15, 4, for God commanded who? He commanded Moses, write this down, honor your father and your mother. He who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. Jeremiah 32, thus speaks the Lord God of Israel, saying, write in a book for yourself all the words that I've spoken to you. So it is... Uh, originates with God, and God is the authority behind the Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament. Third, every word of Scripture, uh, down to its verb forms, noun cases, and every, every other detail is revealed by God, not just the thoughts, not just the ideas. And so these two phrases that are used in Matthew 5.18, where Jesus says, I say to you, till heaven and earth passes away, one, not one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Now, a yud is this little apostrophe here, and that's the smallest Hebrew letter. And a tittle is the difference between this letter on the left, which is a hey, and the one over on the right, which is called the chet. And the difference is there's a little gap between the left leg on the hey and the a horizontal line, and there's no gap on the right. And those are two different letters, and that'll make a difference between uh, two different words. It's like the difference between an O and a P. That little line that hangs down by the P, that's a tittle, or a B and a D. They're just reversed. Uh, so you have the word bog, and you reverse the first letter, and you have the word dog. The two completely different ideas or the word rug, where you have a little leg on the R and no leg on the capital P, and you have pug. There's a big difference between those two words. So God is saying, or Jesus is saying, that inspiration extends down to the most minute part of the form of a letter because it can make a difference in what word is there. Okay, fourth... The Judeo-Christian worldview and the 16th, 17th, 18th century held the belief that God revealed himself in both a nonverbal manner in what is called general revelation and in a verbal manner in what is called special revelation. Psalm 19, 1 and 2 is general revelation. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Romans 1, 18 to 19, I've already quoted part of this. Uh, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Well, how did they know this truth? Because what may be known, that is the truth that may be known about God, is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. How? 
For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So every human being knows God exists. Fifth, God revealed himself through Jesus of Nazareth. John 1.14 says that the word that is Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So we know that we know God because we can look at Jesus, and Jesus is the physical manifestation, the incarnation of God in the flesh. Six, we see use of quotations. For example, in Acts twenty-eight twenty-five, uh, Paul says the Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah. So it's not Isaiah's words; it's the Holy Spirit who spoke through Isaiah. And then seventh, Jesus' use of scripture, where he says. Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And then the way he handles Scripture, John ten thirty five, he says, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, so he's talking about the Old Testament as the word of God, and he says in the Scripture cannot be broken. I want to take just a minute and hit a couple of things, because what I've shown you here is this is what the Judeo-Christian worldview thought of the Bible. Okay, that's the Judeo-Christian worldview. But what about the founding fathers? First of all, what do we mean by the founding fathers? We're talking about that generation that came to leadership between 1760 and 1820. That's not just five or six men who are most influential in writing the Declaration of Independence or later the Constitution. It is talking about a very large group of of leaders. They were the leaders in the colonies. They were leaders at a national level. And most of them, probably 95% of them, believed in, in orthodox biblical truth. They believed Jesus was the Son of God. They believed that Jesus was our Savior, that Jesus rose from the dead. They believed that the Bible was the Word of God and the ultimate authority in their life. Most, if not all, were Orthodox Christians. You had some examples of those who were influenced by a uh, rationality that came out of the Enlightenment, but even Henry F. May in his book called The Enlightenment in America, which is one of the uh, still standard treatments, historical treatments of the Enlightenment in, in America, Henry May, not a Christian author that I know of, Uh, demonstrates that the radical enlightenment of Europe, that which influenced the French Revolution, had minimal influence on the thinking in America. And uh, in his introduction, he states that by 1800, the enlightenment of Europe was rejected by the vast majority of Americans. So the enlightenment did not have that heavy an impact, or at least the radical enlightenment in Europe did not have that much impact on the thinking of the founding generation. And second point as though some like Jefferson, Franklin, and Adams, and to some degree Madison, were influenced by rationalistic theism, they still believed that the morals and ethics of Christianity were the highest. For them, Scripture had a limited authority because they rejected some parts of it, but in the area of morals and ethics, it was still the highest and unimpeachable authority. So let's look at some of the things that, that they said. Well, first of all, before we get into it, I want to remind you of this study done by Dr. Donald Lutz, who at the time was a political science professor at the University of Houston here. He had a 10-year project of his graduate students, 
Uh, they analyzed over 15,000 political documents from 1760 to 1805. They excluded uh, what was called election sermons and a certain number of documents that were uh, specifically Christian. So he's narrowing the field, okay? He, he's really bending over backwards to make sure we're just looking at the writing and the thinking of the, of the founders. And what he discovered was that the most often quoted source for political ideas was the Bible, Mostly over, mostly from the Old Testament, over one third of all the direct quotes. That's why it should be called the Judeo-Christian worldview and not a Christian worldview, because they're f- putting most of the emphasis on Old Testament passages in Leviticus, Deuteronomy, uh, other law passages, uh, Nehemiah, First uh, Samuel chapter eight. Third, the next most quoted source is uh, quoted one-fourth as frequently, and that's John Locke. But John Locke was reared in a Puritan home, and it turns out that a vast number of his quotes are just paraphrases of Scripture. So he says that another 60% of all references came from authors whose original source goes back to the Bible. And another source I looked at, 21 per, all the other sources combined make up 21% of the of the quotes and uh the um uh the the statements that are directly from the bible make up 33%. So the bible far is the authority for them. That's where they get their main ideas. Now why do they go to John Locke and Montesquieu and all of these others? Because the bible doesn't specifically address the situation as they find it on the ground. So look, they, they believe that the Bible gives them the framework for understanding government, but they look at these other authors to see what kind of ideas they have because most of them were also influenced by the Bible. Mark David Hall says in 1776, and here's his book right here that I've recommended before, Did America Have a Christian Founding? He says in 1776, every colonist, with the exception of about 2,000 Jews, identified himself or herself as a Christian. Approximately 98% of them were Protestants, and the remaining 2% were Roman Catholics. John Locke, the Holy Scripture is to me and always will be the constant guide of my belief, and I shall always hearken to it as containing infallible truth relating to the things of the highest concernment. In other words, what are we concerned about here? We're concerned about politics and government, and he says that the Bible contains infallible proof about about that, in infallible truth about that. Locke also said in his book, The Reasonableness of the Christian Faith, not that any to whom the gospel hath been preached shall be saved without believing Jesus to be the Messiah. For all being sinners and transgressors of the law. So there's his view of man. Man is created by God, but he has been corrupted by sin. For all being sinners and transgressors of the law and so unjust are all liable to condemnation unless they believe. And so through grace are justified by God for this faith, which shall be accounted to them for righteousness. Now that's as clear as it can be. Absolutely correct. Mark David Hall also states the Bible was everywhere in the colonies. No home or school was without one which was used daily. The American historian Joyce Appleby observed that, quote, the most important source of meaning for 18th century Americans was the Bible. Benjamin Franklin, in a letter to Samuel Cooper in 1781, said it's not necessary. It was not necessary in New England. Well, let me preface this. He's in England when he writes this. 
And so he's, he's talking about the, the, the quoting of Scripture. He says, It was not necessary in New England, where everybody reads the Bible and is acquainted with Scripture phrases, that you should note the text from where you took them. You know, you go to, and he goes on to say, if you go to England and you quote passages of the Bible without giving the reference, they have no idea what you're talking about because they're not familiar with the Bible. In Pennsylvania... They are so focused on the authority of the Bible that they wrote an oath in 1776. Still, this is before the dec- this is before the formation of the Articles of Confederation or the Constitution. But every legislator had to take an oath to the Pennsylvania Constitution. I do believe in one God, the Creator and Governor of the universe the rewarder of the good and the punisher of the wicked. And I do acknowledge the scripture of the Old and New Testament to be uh, given by divine inspiration. Now think about that. My point is, we first of all talked about what's the Judeo-Christian view of the authority of the Bible. And now I'm giving you these quotes to show you that even though they were not necessarily orthodox in their biblical belief, they still believed in the ultimate authority of the Bible whether it was a national constitution or in a, in a colony, it makes the point. John Marshall, who was later chief justice, said Christianity and religion are identified. See, for them, the word religion meant Christianity, Protestant Christianity. So Christianity and religion are identified. It would be strange indeed if with such a people our institutions did not presuppose Christianity. Benjamin Rush said, the only foundation for a useful education in a republic is to be laid in religion. By that he means Christianity. He was one of the most devout of the uh, founding fathers. Without this, there can be no virtue, and without virtue, there can be no liberty, and liberty is the object in life of all republican governments. The religion I mean to recommend in this place is that of the New Testament. This is where we're going to go next time when we talk about ethics, is they all understood, from Jefferson to John Adams to George Washington, they all understand that the form of government established in this nation would not be able to last if the people were not Christians, if the people did not believe in a Judeo-Christian worldview. If they have another worldview, then this country would collapse. They understood that, and we're seeing the result of the shift of a worldview in this country today. William Williams, who was a signer of the Declaration, and he was a member of Connecticut's ratification convention, and he said, we the people of the United States, he wanted to change this in the Constitution, to say, we the people of the United States, in a firm belief of the being and perfections of the one living and true God, the creator and supreme governor of the world in his universal providence and the authority of his laws. Now, that didn't get accepted, but the fact that he recommended that indicated this was a popular view. This was the dominant view, but the response was, we don't need to put such a heavily weighted view. Everybody understands this. Everybody believes it. So that's, that is the idea. So I'm going to end with that quote. Next time, we're going to come back and talk about the next area now that we've talked about how do we know what we know, how do we know what right and wrong are? When you have people look at anything and they say that's right, that's wrong, 
What value system do we appeal to? What authority do we appeal to? Where do we get those ideas? Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening. May we come to understand what a biblical form of government should be like, what biblical justice and righteousness should be like, and come to understand the nature of every human being as having value in your eyes and being important, distinct, and unique, and that justice should equally apply to all. Father, we pray that you'd help us to understand that without a transformation of this nation back to the scriptures, that there is no hope, there will be no future, and it's all left to whoever has the greatest power and the most money as to who rules. And that will be horribly tragic. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.